Today's episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. This is uh, Michael Snydell from the Film Stage Show, but you are not, in fact, listening to the Film Stage Show today. Instead, this is a new spinoff that is tentatively called Intermission. Um, and so this will be a one-on-one, so that will be me, It's sorry, <laughs> um, and a, uh, a wonderful guest who comes to make me feel incredibly stupid. About uh, a number a number of films. So we are still going to do regular episodes. Our next episode is, in fact, going to be Catch Me If You Can with Neil uh, Badahur. Um, yeah, we, we, we're going to get him to talk about... <laughs> of, of course, Neil yeah, would choose that. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to him about it. But uh, yeah, today uh, you're hearing the voice of Ryan Swen who it's uh, it's been a little while. I think the last time you were on, Ryan, was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, that was the only time, I think. So. Oh, that's the only time. Well, yeah, you're like, back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so we have a few things planned for what this is going to be, but um, this is going to focus a little more on art house, foreign, uh, foreign films, things that are a little denser, uh, like full disclosure, I am looking for another job at the moment, mm. and my two other co-hosts on the Film Stage Show are a little busy. Um, so I wanted something to keep myself sharp, and I wanted an excuse to talk to a lot of lovely people about uh, canon blind spots and various things along those lines. We are still brought to you by Mubi, uh, the lovely streaming service that has 30 days, uh, 30 films a month. Um, I am so good at hosting, guys. Um, And yeah, they have a number of fantastic selections, uh, including things ranging from uh, Tromeo and Juliet to India Song. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the Grand Bazaar. Uh, so I, I will say that today's film, though, is part three of Wang Bing's uh, Dead Souls, which is, uh, as Mubi's uh, copy says, it's a personal and often painful conclusion to his monumental 10-year three-part triumph, Dead Souls and its cinema of testimony. Seen previously in Feng Ming, a Chinese memoir, and The Ditch, confirms documentarian Wang Bing as one of our most major, most essential of filmmakers. I've heard lovely things about this, but uh, he seems like a little bit of an intimidating filmmaker. Do you have Do you have any experience with uh, uh, Wang Bing, Ryan? I actually haven't gone around to him yet. I was meaning to watch Dead Souls, uh, but like back in 2018, but I sort of <laughs> <laughs> ran out of time. Uh, but and notably, it's in three parts because it is an eight-part, uh, an eight-hour film. So you you have yes. some time to space it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna say when I first asked for you to pick a film, I was like, Ryan, don't pick Lafleur, because <laughs> <laughs> you have been one of the the crusaders to try to convert anyone who will listen. But yes, um, 
yeah, I will. I'm hoping to eventually get in, get that in quarantine. But uh, either way, yes, uh, Mubi is a wonderful service. And now we can get started with the show proper. Uh, Ryan, for our first uh, for the first film in this series that I have no idea how long it's going to go, what it's going to be, but we're just going to do it. <laughs> um, well, I'm honored that you chose me for the first. We couldn't have anyone better, so Aww, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> and you're going to make me feel uh, very dumb about Truffaut, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Truffaut is, he's, you know, he's kind of one of the uh, film history 101s in yes. the case of Jules and Jim and... Uh, 400 blows mm-hmm. and uh i mean he has a a pretty huge filmography that doesn't necessarily get overlooked but the film that you brought today is two in- two english girls which uh i believe is also adopted by the novelist who did jules and jim mm-hmm. as, as well yes um so why did you why did you want to talk about this one well it was one that i've been meaning to rewatch for a while and it's a film that's near and dear to me and i, I think that like it's sort of a really fascinating example of like what Truffaut could do at his very best. And I think this is far and away my favorite of his films. And uh, I, I just really, I just really love it. And I, and I thought like it was, you know, slightly lesser known, but it's also like per your stipulations, it's streaming on the Criterion channel. And I, I think it's, well, uh, at least I hope it still is. I'm not sure if it's leaving. No, it is. Soon. It is. <laughs> but it is a film that I have a great, I have a great fondness for it basically. And I think it's a, a really remarkable work. Yeah, no, it, it is. It, it was certainly a fascinating film. And I, I said to you off mic that it was fascinating because Day for Night uh, his, I, I guess, one of Truffaut's films about explicitly about filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, is actually expiring on Criterion oh. th- this month. So I, I just got to that. And, and it's a little bit of whiplash going <laughs> from day day for night uh, to this. I, if anything, it's a good reminder that even at his most, uh, you know, solemn and, and and serious and you know this certainly has like a facade of a more stately, <laughs> a stately mm-hmm. film. He is playful and and mm-hmm. it's it's not the um it, it, it's not uh, a small thing for instance that he casts Jean-Pierre Léaud uh in Day for Night as kind of a, a selfish um <laughs> his selfish like kind of idiotic lead mm-hmm. like who's just horribly uh unconfident and <laughs> uh feels the need to go go-karting when soul-searching, <laughs> which, you know, there could be worse things. But to kind of start with uh, two English girls, what are kind of the, what are kind of the initial things you, you wanted to say about it, Ryan? Um, I mean, yeah, I might as well start with a brief context. It is the, it is adapted from the second of two novels by Henri-Pierre Rocher, who wrote uh, Jules Jules and Jim, and it's very, it's basically, they're, they're both self, uh, semi-autobiographical, and they're, and Truffaut adapted both of them, obviously, and <laughs> it's, it's basically, it follows a similar sort of premise, uh, albeit somewhat gender-swapped. I think, apparently, Jules and Jim was originally about his, uh, his, rela- his relationship with either two women or two sisters. I'm not exactly oh, really? sure which. So, so that first version was 
you know, like was gender swapped, and this one is like sort of maybe closer to what actually happened to Roche, and is, and it's one of the most one of the more notable things about it, at least in a sort of background sense, is that it was those really originally released in 1971, right before Truffaut died in 1984. He he was sort of unsatisfied with it, so he put back in 20 minutes. So the version oh, that we really? see now, yeah, which is around 131 minutes, is is the, I guess, a director's cut of sort, or like an extended <laughs> cut. And it's and I think that's, I, I haven't seen, both times I've seen it have both been in the 130-minute version. And I think I couldn't, it's sort of remarkable to me because a lot of what really distinguishes this film is how it breathes, how it is pursuing at this much more ungraspable nature. Like it, it's very, like it moves and fits and starts. I guess. Like yeah. The, um, and I think what's so remarkable, it, it really mirrors how this relationship that Jean-Pierre Lyot's character Claude uh, has with these two sisters, Muriel and Anne, really, really, really well. And it it it's just a very, it's a very emotional. <laughs> Film for me, I guess. Yeah, no, it's it's it is fascinating to you know beyond uh, beyond him coming back to uh, uh, Ro- Rochefort. Is that how you say it? Uh, no, uh, Ro- Roche. Oh, Roche. Sorry. No, I, I'm getting young girls of Rochefort <laughs> stuck in my head. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think it is to kind of to kind of jump uh, piggyback on what you're talking about that ineffability. Like you know, there is always this sense of kind of fatalism that I've felt mm-hmm. in Truffaut's and, and, and it's, it's been very playful, but it's also been very, uh, it's very content to not mm-hmm. really explain any inner monologues to give even a lot of dialogue. So like specifically, like I, I wrote down, um, I, I, like I was thinking about this almost as like a schematic of ineffability. Like <laughs> I like the idea that this is such a like minute granular arc mm-hmm. <laughs> of how these characters feel about each other. And it doesn't like often like make logical sense or <laughs> even emotional sense. What I mean though, is mm-hmm. I find this really fascinating in opposition to something like Jules and Jim, because not mm-hmm. only is it extremely uh, dense in dialogue, it's it's dense in a way where they're constantly trying to capture abstract feelings mm-hmm. from like not necessarily moment to moment, but it is um, especially the way the the editing works in this. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the second half really loves those uh, fade to iris. Uh, iris fades but there's so many fade to blacks in this like they almost want you to take a moment to take in this point of development Mm -hmm. like it's it's really interesting to me because i i feel like the majority and it's a small amount of truffaut i've seen is very much in this french new wave mode where it's a little like you just gotta go with it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this uh this feels so um, radically different. So please correct me if there's a period in Truffaut that seems more in line with this. But I, I was just surprised the um, 
Yeah, again, like, it's just interesting that you were talking about the length. Because Mm -hmm. this movie keeps thinking, like, I keep thinking it's going to follow kind of a a linear dichotomy in Mm -hmm. terms of Anne and Muriel. And it it doesn't. (laughs) Like, it keeps seeming like it's going to faint towards that arc. Mm -hmm. And then it pulls away... And I think, like, I feel like the big line uh, is, which is right near the end that Muriel says, is we've done nothing wrong, but our love is a failure. (laughs) And I think that's a fascinating encapsulation of this movie, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that, like, at least in Muriel's case, she's, like, very self-punitive like there's a Mm -hmm. there's a weird like flagellation or Mm self-flagellation quality to this to this whole film Mm -hmm. what what do you sorry just to bring it back to the jules and jim thing stop (laughs) rambling i mean did you also feel that uh very different approach then oh yeah absolutely i think that well one, one of the key things i think just about Truffaut and French New Wave in general is that even though there are sort of subgroups, certainly among the Kaye group, I think the only two people that are really well known, certainly in that sort of film film studies, film enthusiasm one oh one, is sure. that it's only it's only really Truffaut and Godard that are known, and then it's really yeah. only a handful of films, or in Godard's case, his sort of his sixties period or yeah. 60 to 67 period where, and for Truffaut, it's really 400 blows, rules of gym to some degree, day for night, you know, shoot, like, the, piano shoot the piano player. Right. Yeah. 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 So, and I think that's sort of, well, I think that even though those are great films and then 400 blows is a particular favorite of mine, it is, it's still, it sort of conceals or colors people's perception of what his films are like, what they're about. And I think that, especially in this sort of 70s period, he has this much more much more classical style. And I think that you can see that even in 400 Blows. I think Jules and Jim is, is maybe more on the very French New Wave style. And I think that sure. that sort of difference, that nine-year difference really, like when you compare Two English Girls and Jules and Jim, it has this very stark contrast because I think it's a very classical style in Two English Girls. And I think that's especially key because this is very much a film that's engaging with its time period that's engaging with the social mores and and customs that it's that are inherent to fin de siècle uh paris england and it's very sure. much about uh, we should say that the full french title is le deux anglais et le continent and the continent is even though you don't actually really hear this in the no. film, but it's their it's their nickname, uh, Anna Muriel's nickname for for Claude, and I think that and among other things, that sort of divide between French society and English society is extremely important. Yeah. and you get that, and that's especially where Mrs. Brown, I feel like, really communicates uh, communicates mm-hmm. that in a very explicit way. Right. Yeah. She, yeah. She has a. She specifically states that she doesn't feel that the the international marriages or international <laughs> relationships can really work. Yeah. And to some degree, that's especially in the case of Claude and Muriel, that's true. And Muriel, I think you d- do see that sort of, that sort of 
self-criticism, self-critique in a lot of, especially late Truffaut, I think the story of Adele H is with Isabel Ajani is extremely uh, in that <laughs> mode. Like it's like it has, you know, like th- that film is basically also set, I think late, late 19th century. Um, it, it is basically her sort of wasting way because of her extreme ardor, her extreme passion for this, for this military officer that does not return <laughs> it whatsoever. And so just her wandering, wandering in the streets of, of, I think somewhere in South America <laughs> by the end. Uh, but it, like, and you sort of see that, I think one of the really, one of the most remarkable sequences in Two English Girls is this, lo- is this 10 minute section right in the middle where, where Leo completely disappears and it's just Anne and Muriel as Muriel finds out that they have that the sort of one year separation yeah. that was enforced by the, by the parents in order to test their love uh, has failed yeah. because Claude wants to be in a free spirited art critic um, and travel the, travel the, the continent sure. uh, sleeping with women. Um, it's, I mean, like that, that's just, that's the sort of thing. That's the thing that's so that, that moves me so much about this and that why I feel it's, it goes, it's a film of contradictions. Like, like all, pretty much all great love stories it's very much about the sort of divide between on the one hand you have these young people a, a little bit younger than Jules and Jim I think they're around their 20s when when sure. they start and, yeah and you have these young people still living with their parents and parents have a very key sort of presence in their lives especially for Claude and his mother and you have that youthfulness and then yet you, you have Rocher writing at the end of his life. I think he died the same year that this was written. Oh, wow. And you have, you have Truffaut still sort of youthful. Obviously, he died, he, he died quite early, but he's still sort of like in this middle period. So he's communicating across all these divides. And it's Truffaut filming from a 1970s perspective, on the one hand, very classically with these irises and with these, with these um, frequent fade-outs. But also he has this narration which is at once both inviting you closer into into layouts especially his mindset but also distancing in a certain way it's describing things very frequently describing things that are just happening on the screen and yet it's done in such a way that it's very literary yeah i guess uh it's very literary but that doesn't make it any less involving <laughs> in a certain way it, it like it seems it, it's just one of those films that embodies all of those different things and it's very much in the sort of like the fades each fade feels like it's covering an unspecified it, like it, it is very clearly designed to sort of confuse or upend your sense of how these things are progressing it's on like some of the fades are just in between like an act of love making where it's it goes immediately like they're still in the same yeah. bed, whereas some are are spanning months years in some cases and it's 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 very much how they're experiencing it's trying to capture what they're experiencing and i think that it does it in a really a really special way well, i think that uh yeah speaking of the time and and the way that works i mean it's it, it's not quite you know e- epistolary style but there is mm-hmm. a very fascinating way in which the the letters manifest like that yes that is like the main plot movements almost entirely happen 
in the course of back and forth letters between Claude, right. uh, sorry, Claude, Anne, and, and Muriel. But even, even still, I think especially with Muriel, I, I find it fascinating that uh, Truffaut regularly, like in sentences, switches between voiceover to mental thought to speaking thought. Yes. But especially with Muriel, I felt like almost a mantra quality. Like it's, I, I, it's, there are maybe a dozen lines that are reported or excuse me, uh, repeated, you know, twice or three times. And, and, you know, it is Mm. some main things like the, the fixation on sister, uh, and Mm. especially Mm. early on where he assumes that these two women are not interested in him in any way. And, and then Mm. later how that comes back where these people are sisters, how could you set them against each other? And, you know, mm-hmm. so it's that letter qualities is really fascinating in what you're, what you're talking right. about. Mm-hmm. Of course. And these letters are, I think they're all read by like when, when they're not being read on screen, they're all read by Truffaut. Truffaut's the narrator mm-hmm. and he, he's very, and, but also you have three or four instances where you have these, these letters being read directly to camera by the by the pers- by the writer. They're read or mostly directly to camera. They're, they're like looking slightly sure. above, but they're in this very. And you see this. I think this is actually one of those things that has sort of proliferated. Like you see that in a lot of Arnaud Desplechon films. You s- you see that even in Little Women. Uh, with it reminded me of with Bright Luke, Star Luke a little bit. C- Campion's Bright oh, Star. Maybe, yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't I haven't seen that, but I would not be surprised and it is very much like it, it, it is just like it acts as this way of communicating how people respond across divides across these sort of geographical divides and uh, in some ways across mental divides and it is I, I think it's just like one of those techniques that he uses that breaks your conventional understanding of the film's language of the film's uh both verbal and cinematic language, visual language, and I, I think it's just a it, it's it's one of those it's one of those moments that feels like a very like a galvanizing force, and frequently it's used at these very crucial crucial junctures um, for obvious reasons. Yeah, but even the the exceptions that you pointed out, for instance, like you know Anne reading the letter uh, in front. Sorry, uh, it, in the frame, or, or you know th- things where it mm-hmm. does divert from the usual presentation, it's not always, you know, pivotal moments or anything. Like, right. yeah. I, I think it is interesting that you, I, I mean, I know you're obviously uh, speaking from an understanding of, of eras in relation to Truffaut, but it's fascinating you mm-hmm. use that word classical in the sense that, like, you know, I, I briefly used the word stately, and, and I find it fascinating mm-hmm. that there are a lot of shots that do seem to be very intentionally static. And then he'll do something flashy mm-hmm. like that tracking shot along the riverbed, which is just a mm-hmm. dazzling shot, but might be one of the only times that he really does something that seems, you know, like very rigorous and, and difficult, mm-hmm. uh, which is not to say that there's not an intentionality to all, all of the camera work, but there is something that they, as you're saying, like it, draws your attention into something that is 
it is the entire purpose of the frame. Like he's not mm-hmm. giving you a lot to to look at in a way, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Well, I think it is, among the other things, it is very much that is interfacing very strongly with the society. There's really only less than ten characters, really, like like characters in a significant way, and you you and even like obviously to some degree that's because of the how much focus Claude and Anna Maria have, but at the same time, it's very like even though there are frequently, or at least in the second half, there are frequently scenes with. A lot of people, like a lot of figures, say in restaurants or cafes, yeah. it is it 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 moves very quickly to focus just on just on these main characters in a way that doesn't feel. I don't I don't think it's meant to feel exclude like it's 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 excluding only in the sense that that's what the characters are focused on. Yeah. Like there it there it is really something that's all consuming, even as they are pursuing other affairs or pursuing other other pursuits um it is the focus is always on them in a way that feels very that feels very fitting for the mindset that they're in yeah I, like for instance i i think that too is you know uh, a, a kind of representative of how sly th- this film is almost about a, its mm-hmm. outer fringes like, you know, it, mm-hmm. it comes in things like when his mom comes to visit him and he's sending a suitor, or not a suitor away, but mm-hmm. in a, someone he's having an affair with. Yeah. And very obviously, because yes. she's like, don't come yes. tomorrow, my husband's back, or, or, or whatever, <laughs> something along those lines. Right. But And that's the only time you see that character in the in the yeah. film. Like, it's, it's, it's very open, I think in a self-critique way, but we can get back to that yeah yeah and i yeah and then you have the artist who's like would you like to see me and then she has a a nude <laughs> self-portrait where then you find out they're having mm-hmm. this whole conversation and two people have just been uh <laughs> posing in the background um yes. <laughs> but like yeah i think i think that stuff is is really interesting because i it, it's fascinating that at once so much time passes and so much of this film like as you're saying it's this all-consuming, you know, either suffering or joy, and, and these, you know, mm-hmm. two, two poles in general. Like it, it yeah. It, I do think it's especially fascinating, and I'm not sure what to make of it. But I, I, I think again, going back to Muriel, I think I find Muriel more interesting than Anne, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but I think Muriel, like especially when it comes to her kind of jags of despair, they are presented Mm. very histrionically compared to almost any other. Yeah. Compared to almost any other performer, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, not only when she seems to faint, but like there's just such a, uh, you know, like a a self exorcism (laughs) quality I guess going back to her own, like, mm-hmm. deep shame about the fact that mm-hmm. uh, she experiences a, a lust, which, again, is even fascinating mm-hmm. compared to her sister, who seems to be having all of these affairs to try to figure out who she who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is... I think that, like, you, you sort of see that even in the sort of illness she has, which is much more apparent, because both the... Both Claude and 
and have illnesses of some sort and dies of tuberculosis and Claude has his bro- broken leg for the first <laughs> 10 minutes or so but they're but they're sort of not necessarily gloss over but they're not represented near, nearly to the degree that Anne's sort of eye, eyesight I guess or, or like her sort of weak eyes are yeah. presented and yeah and I think that it's sort of a I think at the same time there is this very you you get the sense of the suffering of Claude and Anne just as much as just presented in a much less direct mm. way. I think that sort of tension is really one of the keys that that powers the love triangle essentially. It is uh because Anne I think because Anne for the first half or so of the film is almost not real is almost not really in the love triangle mode at all because she's making this very self sacrificial move to deliberately put Claude and Muriel together and in this way that only really becomes apparent in the second yeah. half. And that and and yeah, I think that one of the most one of the loveliest passages in the film uh is this week long stay at a at a secluded cabin that Claude and yeah. Anne have where they're they go to try to figure out exactly what their relationship is and it is this you know sort of slow progression the first day they sleep in separate beds the second they sleep clothed together but they don't have sex and then they have sex in the third in the, on the third day and like this just the way that Truffaut renders it feels very much like it's heightening the lyrical potential to its of the film to its very to its very heights in a way that I find really fascinating and I think just how though I think Mario has the more certainly the wider mood swings the wider uh, emotional expression I think that they I think one of the great greatest things about this film is how how central each of these three characters feels but ultimately by the end how they have their own sort of moments of full ardor full passion but also full heartbreak and devastation it's just presented in in different ways, both by the performers. Uh, we should mention Anne is played by Kika oh, yes. Markham, who I think is also in yes. Day for Night, and uh, and Marielle is played by Stacy Tendenter, and I think they're all remarkable. And Leod, I should say, is my favorite actor, um, and uh, this is one of his three great, one, like one one of his in like the like these three performances are like by Leod. Uh, also including out one from the same year somehow. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't it was the same year. Out, out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, out one out, he he looks like he looks about 15 years older in in out one somehow. Uh so that and the mother and the horror from 73. I think those are I would put those three performances up against basically any other one. Like the, those are like three of my favorite performances of all time. And this one is very much like he's much more classical much more subdued but in a way that feels very like it's well the fascinating thing about it is that for Truffaut and this is maybe going on a different tangent but still no, it's fine. but like I think that one of the things like though I do like the Duanel films and I have a and Fornjolo is my second favorite Truffaut but I think the other ones besides maybe Antoine Collette the short that's the second one I think the three other features don't really captivate me as much whereas something like this or his film the man who loved women from 77 starring uh, charles charlotte denaire uh i think that these this and 
the man who loved women get at something much more interesting for Truffaut. I think that one of the things I think he just sees too much of himself in Duanel in those Duanel <laughs> films, and so like they're 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 fun. Certainly, they have their own pleasures, but I think that there's something. I think he's too invested in the, in them to critique sort of his tendencies, his sort of womanizing, certainly, and you see a lot of that in implicitly or like explicitly into English girls and the men who love women. And that's not really present to the same degree in the Duanel films. Like they're less, they're, they're more concerned with sort of riffs, whatever sort of genre riff he's doing at that time. Uh, and then in the critique. And I think you really see that, like you see it sort of building up throughout and you sort of just see all the actions that Claude is doing both. Like you can tell that fundamentally he's good, but like his actions can frequently be, Truffaut, I think, even says at one point that he's, he's, he experiences for the first time the sort of suffering that he has made other people <laughs> feel, uh, and you, and just the the ending, which is like and it's like, like the, an hour and fifty minutes in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 then you see at the ending, like first, sort of Muriel rejecting him after after the night they spent together, and then the epilogue, which is I think, which is just totally devastating for for me. Where you see him in this patently fake sort of beard and, and grain hair, <laughs> like it, it's it's very clearly fake, and yet at the same sure. time, like it's that sort of artifice where there wasn't really a substantive uh, amount of artifice before. You see that like that sort of drives home what can't really be expressed by Truffaut at this particular time, but it's something that he's clearly striving for, and that act, like that clear effort of trying to capture it, sort of mirrors like that sort of deep inhabitation of the turn of the century uh, mode that, that he's trying to go for. Like, you see just him walking through and you see the statue of of uh, Balzac and obviously yes. Balzac, very central to, to Truffaut and the French New Wave in general. Um, that statue of Balzac, which is, which 15 years prior had been, or I guess a little bit longer, had been, was, was rejected, was sort of um, yeah, it was, was commissioned was, yeah. but rejected. Yeah. And, yeah, and then now, and then now, in the nineteen twenties, it's a classic, and sort of you and like so like <laughs> that sort of like that's just like a perfect little detail that speaks to, speaks to so much more about the film's sense of time, about what what's passing, and how this earlier moment, this all-consuming passion, has been is all fundamentally sort of transient, and you just have Claude alone, bare like. And his last line, last line in the film is, like, oh my goodness, I'm, uh, I'm looking old today for some reason. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the shot pans over as he walks through a door, and then there are these schoolgirls who there might be one of Muriel's daughters, and there might, there yes. might not, and he's just barely taller than any of them. <laughs> he's like half a head taller than the tallest of them. I, I don't know how Truffaut did that because Leod is five seven, which is not that short. But he sure. just, but he he looks tiny in that. Like it's just this <laughs> ultimate expression of this. It's not defeat, but it's this sort of. It encapsulates all of these emotions about living without this sense of passion, without this, like knowing that you have lost, you you have lost not just one but two really remarkable people in his life, and like two and. I don't think we mentioned before that he f frequently refers to them as sisters, 
Um, yes. Which, you know, introduces its own sort of psychosexual <laughs> dynamics into the mix. Um, but sure. it is, it, it just speaks to the ultimate sadness of the film. And I think that's, that sadness is what captivates me as much as just how passionate it feels in every moment, how alive it feels. I think the other interesting thing you already mentioned the the moment where he says he's feeling pain for the first time mm-hmm. i think it's i don't think it's right then but shortly before that he says uh he feels the first certitude mm-hmm. so, like the possibility that so much of his life has been ambiguous mm-hmm. and he's been you know <laughs> he's been in his own way totally uh you know, in in a daze mm-hmm. and unaffected by the ways that he's, uh, you know, hurting mm-hmm. these women. Like, and they, it, it is fascinating to speak of that divide again. I'm realizing that, you know, for being called two English girls, there is a very, uh, there's a very concrete sense of when you go in and out of French and into English mm-hmm. yes. and things like that. But the majority of the film is really outside England. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, you spend a lot of time at the house, yeah. uh, but that house is, you know, it kind of does embody a, a lot of the expectations he has mm-hmm. of Anne and Muriel. Mm-hmm. Like, it is a very chaste place. Mm-hmm. Like, I think of even that bizarre scene where I'm, I'm not familiar with this tradition and I didn't get to look it up, but right after uh, charades, they... <laughs> Do a kiss yeah. through the uh, sorry through, through the uh, yeah. th- through a chair mm-hmm. yeah, which is like such a an odd gesture mm-hmm. in relation to everything else that happens mm-hmm. in that house, yeah. and like going back to what you're saying about that final scene about like passionless, like there's a number of other patterns of how he edits those rejections, mm-hmm. whether it's a door closing at the top of the stairs, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, when he leaves uh, or when he goes to visit Muriel and they have that, or wait, no, sorry. When uh, Anne comes to tell him that she brought Muriel mm-hmm. with her, like there are a number of cases in there that I find I find fascinating in relation to that divide because France and Persia and all of these other places in the world really bring out the worldliness <laughs> of uh, of Anne and Anne and Muriel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and going back to that that scene of charades, like like one of the yeah. fascinating thing is that the passion is all like you see Cla- Claude looks over right before he and he kisses Anne on the cheek. It's, so I don't think he actually. Yeah, yeah, he he kisses her on the on the cheek, um, yes. and and before he does it, he looks over at Muriel, and you see like because she's wearing dark spectacles, and you see the fire, of, like the fireplace <laughs> reflected in her lenses, yes. so she has two <laughs> pinpricks of light just glowing, or not really, and like flames of light glowing in there. Yes. So you see like you have moments like that throughout where you see the passion is redirected or it's um, expressed in a different way than you might have originally expected. And it, and yet it doesn't really take away from the sort of like you, you that kiss is both chaste, and yet it has its own sort of because it has its own sort of desire because even though their love for each other ends and Claude's isn't hasn't been shown uh, hasn't been shown at this point, you still get that just from 
how deep their friendship is when they first meet in France, how he speaks of this, his greater admiration for both of the sisters' intelligence and how quick-witted and and firm in their own in their own ways they are, and so it it is sure. just, and you get moments like that throughout. You get like along in this long, fifty-minute se- scene sequence when they're just all on the island together, where, for instance, he talks with them about bordellos and and, and they <laughs> yes. say oh you, you must take us some time and <laughs> and you have just and i think that one of the great things about the film is just how it's willing to go on these scene long sequence long digressions before before moving on not really mentioning them or following up upon them again it's just a way and i wonder if these are some of the things that that were not in the original cut but they're hmm. they feel very much key to our understanding the viewer's understanding of these characters and just what makes them tick basically and what really distinguishes them because I, I think that and you even see that with the secondary characters like you see that with their neighbor Mr. Flint's who has who after who's when the two mothers meet um, and he's he says he's going to translate for them and he says that that his French isn't very good and then he proceeds to give this long Sort of long <laughs> prescription that that goes that that goes very well. That's how, that's that's very good. Um, and and then you have that the sort of other major character Jerica, uh, who is Anne's other love, and that sort of profound generosity of having of having him go meet, see her on the island and and sort of persuades her to get a doctor just before she dies. It, it feels it never feels. It, it it never feels like it dismisses any of its characters. Like it feels that it's taking all of them seriously, and as as a result, it feels like it's taking the time. It's it doesn't feel like he's trying to critique or or condemn yeah, condemn the yeah. like the characters, but also the time period. Like it's very it takes it for at, as granted. It it takes it it takes it as it comes and explores how its characters react in the face of it. And I think that's really. I think that that a lot of the a lot of great films that interface with history that that's really a key mark of them, and I think that this is very much an exemplar of that. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting about Durka is that you know even as we only see bits of his relationship, I, I really like even just the 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 very natural way that it establishes that they stay at least acquaintances <laughs> like like the fact that he you know they're like i didn't like you i didn't like you either at the beginning yeah and it's not like they're like you're all right but they're like we're a part of each other's lives now for a bit mm-hmm. and i'll update you whenever i hear something <laughs> like but it's but then that's fascinating that that comes in contrast to for instance uh a Leod's a character trying to turn Muriel's kind of manifesto Mm -hmm. into like a great work of literature, which is (laughs) such like a a selfish (laughs) gesture or him writing a book that's just like lightly, uh, lightly changed. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, (laughs) that's basically like the films uh, that the book is called Jerome Julien. Uh, So like it's basically Jules and Jim, like, because it's also gender swaps. Um, the book that he writes about his relationship with his sisters. Yeah. It's it's also it's basically I don't know like the cycle's perpetuated in a certain sense. But like I think that one of the, 
one thing that I've forgotten, and I think that it's that it feels right, is that after it's been printed, it's not really mentioned anymore. It's not like it's not mentioned whether it's a big success or not, or because at the end he is a successful author, but it's not really mentioned whether it's because of this book. So I think think that I think that feels right. I think even though it goes on these digressions, what is there, and what isn't there, everything like feels. Like, it only really goes for what's essential, really. Um, and I think that's really... I, I, I think that feels feels absolutely pertinent to the concerns of the, the, of the film. Yeah, I think, I think in that same uh, breath, you could, you could point out that, for instance, going back to his own perception of success, like the... Uh, I, guess, I guess it would be Truffaut's narration, specifically, mm-hmm. like, uh, identifies that he wasn't a successful author. This is earlier on. Yes. Uh, considerably before the end. And he was just writing on Eastern European artists. <laughs> like, it's just so dismissive. <laughs> um, which, that's, that's something I kind of love about this, is, like, the way it holds culture so dearly, but also is just, like, oh, this was also a way to just kind of meet women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I think that that keeping it both sacred and, you know, leisurely, mm-hmm. it's, or, you know, uh, yeah, leisurely is, uh, is again, a really, a really fascinating thing that, like, it, it almost, it, it's just weird to me because at, at one point it feels like a deconstruction, mm-hmm. but that is almost too uh, too solid mm-hmm. of a word mm-hmm. for for where it chooses to go. I think sometimes he even gets at these ellipses that, for the most part, the phase accomplished just in these little concrete images. I think the one that I think about the most is is Claude right after his mother has died. Just him, it's just a shot. Like there's exactly one scene of her ailing and he asks for something yeah. and she says she trusts what whatever he's going to decide and then it's a shot of him standing in front of this sort of black banner like being unfurled for i guess maybe their apartment or her apartment and just a single tear on his face and that's all you really need um and it's just it just feels like just Truffaut's abilities at this point just the way he's able to make something so so fluidly so elegantly it feels very different like i think that's a lot of what separates jules and jim um like jules and jim uh, it's all about or mostly about like these big big sequences like them running uh on on the bridge um and and uh john moreau's character you know in 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 drag and male drag but uh, sure. but like and you don't really get those here but i think that's to the films no, to yeah. the film's benefit i think it is just very it it's it's less demonstrative than it like in an overt sense and uh, compared to Truffaut's most famous works like you i think to some degree that's even present in day for night um and and here it's just all about this fluid nature about this the ungraspable nature like you you get from the very start the sense that this is all something that cannot be regained that much as claude would want he can't get back to that house which at the end is sold after mrs brown has died like he he can't wow yeah he can't yeah he can't get back there he he can't ever really see obviously he can't see Anne again but 
even though Muriel's presumably he knows where she still lives like he, you get the sense that he just cannot get back and that's the sort of deep sadness and yet they had this summer they had this really wonderful time filled with both pain but also great love and and compassion and that sort of feeling that you can't really um, understand that you can't really grasp entirely how you feel you can't really encapsulate how you entirely feel it's really one of the things that makes me uh, admire this film so much and that, that makes me you know come back to it and, and fall in love again <laughs> sir I, I, I think speaking of that you know the the kind of necessary ephemeral nature. I, I think that that mom character, I mean, you already spoke about that kind of unceremonious um, of death, which, mm-hmm. yeah, which really struck me as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that mom character is so interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, obviously the film doesn't indulge too much in the psycho- sexual elements, but just for instance, how much he's looking for consent and validation mm-hmm. from his mom mm-hmm. and his mom seems to want him to be an eternal bachelor <laughs> which seems so fascinating mm-hmm. uh you know uh, it seems obviously like another comparison between mrs brown mm-hmm. and uh his mom another way to differentiate those but it's also something that's uh kind of strange to me mm-hmm. that 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 was yeah, like over and over, she wants him to be a bachelor. She mm-hmm. likes when he's just having affairs, mm-hmm. and there's so much about this idea that you were never you were never meant to be a husband, mm-hmm. or you were never meant to be. Which uh, I, I, I I'm not sure was he married by chance or uh, Claude or uh, sorry uh, Truffaut. Speaking of autobiographical nature, I just feel like the way that it hammers home that certain sense mm. of like y- you are never meant to be exactly that. Ha- and I guess happy. And I mm-hmm. guess that's the fluidity <laughs> you, we've obviously mm-hmm. been talking about mm-hmm. the sense that, you know, and in a way was always meant to be just that summer. It was right. always just meant to be like a step and Muriel was supposed to be forever, but it's mm-hmm. not forever. Right. And you have that scene with the, with the the palm reader, uh, like that, yes. that just very short scene, which just very succinctly captures that sense of things being fated, that of things being, you know, proceeding in the way that has been already preordained, uh, and it's just really, and I guess that and you get that sense both from just literal fate, but also from the, these societies in which they move, and that fundamental divide between France and England that is that that is brought up fairly frequently throughout so I guess maybe the best thing to do is you know we're trying to introduce or just you know kind of foster conversation Mm -hmm. about uh, various filmmakers and things like this I know you've already mentioned a few but you know if people like this one you know beyond the canonical Choices. Where would you say people should go next with Truffaut? Oh, with Truffaut. Um, well, I, I've sort of like explored, like for for my other for for my podcast, I've mostly explored like his seventies work. So, but I think that yeah. there's a lot 
in there. I think that his uh, his film, The Wild Child, which actually features like he's the main actor or he's he, one of the main actors in it, and very isn't his Hitchcock riff in the seven soft skin? Wait, am I no? That's 64. getting my filmmakers wrong. No, no, that, oh, that okay. is him, but it's in sixty four. I, okay. I haven't seen that one, but his but The Wild Child from nineteen seventy, uh, where he he's acting as the this sort of um, this professor trying to see if this boy who's been living in the woods like raised like by himself like and he can't speak or anything if he can be learned to be put into regular society and it's like 70 70 85 minutes in black and white very gorgeous oh we should say that this is this like a lot of his films from this time period was shot by Mr. Amandros who uh, hmm. obviously did Days of Heaven and was Romare's regular cinematographer and I, I think that his yeah. his French his French work is I think just as remarkable as Days of Heaven uh, but you have and Tinglucio was also shot by him and he's, I think that's a wonderful film I think his film Small Change uh, from 76 is this quite wonderful it's sort of also revisiting the same sort of subject matter as 400 Blows but I think it's much more much more of an ensemble effort and much focusing much more on the adults as well and I think it's really well balanced and there's a lot of other films that I haven't uh, gone around to yet you know he's had a very wide ranging period I think Mississippi Mermaid is the favorite of a lot of people Uh, I'm seeing The Green Room next in 78 which is his other which is his Henry James film where he's also the main character and that sounds really fascinating yeah I think he has a he certainly has a lot of different <laughs> a lot of different work and it it's 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 a it's a very wonderful filmography in ways people might expect but also it's there's there's many things to discover certainly yeah and no, i i think um I, and i don't mean to reduce it to a box but you know <laughs> rather just trying to uh, offer uh, a way in cuz I, I think that's i think that's sometimes the problem is it's it's hard not to get overwhelmed by you know every uh every wave every country mm-hmm. every different movement <laughs> that contradicts <laughs> the previous and you know mm-hmm. uh, then becomes a postmodern de- deconstruction in the next <laughs> decade so I, I i think yeah I'm, I'm glad you i'm glad you brought this one as our, our first one because i think uh you know the it's easy to forget that some of these directors are multiplicities mm-hmm, uh, and especially when you start getting into you know uh a tourist conversations you start yet you start focusing too much on on patterns and things <laughs> like this this is something i've i've come to on my own i'm trying to almost uh de uh de- decouple myself from <laughs> auteur theory um, i mean but, I'm, I'm very uh, much an auteurist but like i try to take the <laughs> take the sum take the sum total in a, in a certain way uh absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. um but I, i'm sorry are there any last things you'd like to say about this film before we uh kind of do final close out I, I think it's very i think it's, it's, it's a extraordinary and very wonderful film and I hope it gets. I mean, I I doubt it'll ever get as much recognition as as Jules and Jim, but I think that it it is. Uh, I I hope it. I hope more people see it, and I hope more people come to appreciate it. It it doesn't seem like even uh, canonically in certain 
critical, you know, it's not like, for instance, I, as, as much as I can, I don't believe it's on the sight and sound uh, last list or, I, but, so how, how did you particularly come to this? Was it just that you were going through that 70s output and that's how you came to two partly, English girls? Partly for the 70s. I know that it, among people who do, who have seen it, there are a lot of people who love it. I know it's a favorite of Dan Sleet, for instance, uh, but it, hmm. like it, it was just one that you know had its own reputation, certainly uh, its own you know reputation among the critical circles in which we move. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm really again. I'm glad we got to watch it, and I hope I didn't say anything too dumb. So no, I, no, no. I you're you're very your time. Good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your time, Ryan. Um, these days, where can we where can we find you? Well, I write occasionally for the film stage. Um, I've been a bit lax, but but it's but I, I write I write semi frequently. Uh, I have my own website, Taipei Mansions, where I post things that I that you know that I've written sort of, or I link to them at least. I have my podcast, Callous and Witness, which is not it's no longer monthly. It's sort of whenever I can get my guests, basically. Uh, but but you know I I try to put it up at a relatively reasonable pace, and they are very long episodes, but they feature they they feature I was gonna yeah. say I think you're forgiven for how yeah. long they are yeah they, they feature you know films like this was on it on the 72 yeah. uh, po- podcast because it was put in NIF the year after but it's films like this you know uh, a lot of various both canon and very much non-canon films so there's there's something in there for for most most listeners certainly uh, yeah and I have my own inane Twitter at Swen <laughs> underscore Ryan. Um, you know, and I write for various other places like I've written for Reverse Shot, Hyperallergic, uh, Sales Screen Scene. Yeah, it's a, you know, I'm around. <laughs> Not as around <laughs> as I should be, but, you know, I'm around. No, I, I very much understand that. Uh, I, you can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. Uh, I have been trying to write a little bit on letterbox i do reviews occasionally uh for the spool film stage and that's that's mostly it at the moment i just reviewed the restoration of thousand pieces of gold Mm -hmm. which is uh available for a few more days and i i highly recommend uh it's a really interesting um kind of uh riff on uh colonialism uh uh, colonialism stories. It's about a Chinese woman who's dragged to America in the uh, near the end of the 19th century. Um, and uh, oh, I'm also on the film stage show, <laughs> which uh, is the uh, I, I don't know Big Brother podcast. I don't know what paternal relation I'm going to pick. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll be doing this again um uh, ryan we'd love to have you oh I'd back anytime to, yeah. um, thank you so much for listening uh, i'll try to make this a lot more refined and professional <laughs> next time but uh thanks again and we'll see you on the next episode of intermission